You're listening to Women Awake Podcast with Amelia Travis, yoga teacher and wild child turned multi-six-figure business coach, writer, speaker, and spiritual warrior. Women Awake is an experiment in creating community through radical honesty. On this show, there's only two rules, show up and tell the truth. Each week, we share uncensored, truth-telling, shame-busting conversations with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and modern-day mystics, revealing their rise-to-thrive stories, current challenges, and sharing their most powerful tools for transformation, growth, and well-being. This is your place to let down your guard, open your heart, and remember that being human is a crazy, wild ride, but you don't have to do it alone. So lean in, beloved, because we are letting go of fear and walking tall towards our own radical awakening. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back to Women Awake Podcast with your host, Amelia Travis. I am absolutely overflowing with joy to be sitting down today with a woman who I deeply respect and admire. My guest today is a prominent scientist from the University of Oxford, where over a career spanning 14 years, she received all of her academic qualifications, including a master's degree in human genetic disease and a PhD in genomic medicine. Best known for major breakthroughs in cancer research, fertility, and heart disease, her work at Oxford brought her to the attention of the San Diego biotech industry, and in 2014, she was invited to continue her research in the U.S. as an alien of extraordinary ability. Specializing in the science of epigenetics, ancestral trauma, and aging, she uses her expertise to quantify the cellular changes which occur in response to optimizing an individual's environment. She's also a TEDx speaker, a Kundalini yoga teacher, and a genuinely beautiful human being. Please welcome, with so much respect and gratitude, Dr. Colby Kaur. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Amelia. That was such a sweet introduction. I really, really am overjoyed to be here too. So I'd love to share with everyone, because I know you guys like to know how I connect with my guests. Uh, Dr. Colby came and spoke as a guest lecturer at the 200-hour Kundalini Yoga teacher training that I was participating in at the Soul of Yoga in, um, in Encinitas in Southern California. And I believe she came during the second module of our training. So we had two 10-day modules. And during the second module of our training, just to give you some context, I was one week, if that, from having had my breast implants removed. I was about a month out from a really radical healing experience um, around sexual trauma and spiritual oppression. And I was just in this state of, of um, deep healing and openness to my own healing. Um, and curiosity around my own healing. And, and I would say passion around this idea of really reclaiming my, uh, my wholeness and my body and my heart. Um, and she came in and just, you know, she walked into the room, her presence was simultaneously so humble and so regal. And I, felt myself sit up a little bit straighter. And frankly, and I shared this with you, I think later, Dr. Colby, um, or maybe you asked us if there was anybody in the room who was not super excited about science. And my little hand shot up. I was like, yep, that's me. <laughs> um, I'd always had a story that my sister, uh, my sister got all of the math and science ability. And she's, um, an aerospace engineer and very high up at NASA. And I said, I got all the artistic and verbal linguistic ability. And I just had said, you know, I don't, I don't do science. Right. But Dr. Colby came in and started to speak about, um, epigenetics, uh, healing, um, ancestral trauma and, and Kundalini yoga and the, the power of meditation and mantra to heal. And she wove in science with her personal narrative. And I was enraptured. I mean, just so hungry for the knowledge that you were sharing. Um, and then she brought us into a heart brain coherence meditation that just 
shattered me in the best way. It, it broke me, my heart open even more fully than, um, than it already had been. And, um, and it also healed me and it, it created this, this connection, um, with everybody in the room, but even expanding beyond the room. Um, and so I, in that moment was like, I have to, uh, get to know this woman more. I, I have to interview her. I, I, I just want to, um, explore all these conversations that, um, uh, that you were sharing in that time. So, so I'm so privileged that you said yes to come and share with our audience today, um, your wisdom and your, uh, research on these topics. And, um, and I'm just excited to dive in. Um, Me so too. And of course I said, yes, you know, it was so interesting. I remember your hand going up and I remember being delighted by it. I remember being so grateful that there was a person in the room who was so authentic and true to themselves that they would offer actually quite a vulnerable truth about maybe not being so engaged in the science or expecting it to be a boring, fuddy-duddy conversation when you've, you've been through so much already after that 10-day yoga training and then you're, you're really deep in. And so... Um, I really appreciated that you did that. And of course, when you asked me to speak on your podcast afterwards, it was a natural yes. I wanted to get to know you better too. Well, thank you so much for that. So we're going to dive into some of these exciting topics um, and some of the research that you've done around, you know, you shared cancer research. I think when, when I heard you speak, we're talking about reversing heart disease, there was maybe some stuff in, about Alzheimer's. And I know that everybody listening has people in your family or yourself who have been affected by dis-ease or by, um, you know, physical problems in the body or by um, psycho-spiritual emotional trauma. And so one of the things that we're going to talk about today is like the science of, is it actually possible to reverse these things or change these things? And what part of that is related to our gene expression, like our actual DNA that is coming from our family? What part of it um, is affected by our environment? What part of it is affected by our mindset or our emotions or our kind of internal landscape? Um, but before we can talk about any of that, I think like for everyone listening who is maybe like me and feels like I'm not that into science or I don't know what these words mean, um, could you explain to us what is, I don't even know if I'm saying it right, genomic or genomic medicine and what is the field of epigenetics? Well, it ties in really nicely to what you just spoke about actually because well, genomic medicine, which is what my training in at Oxford was in, is the science of how we can use the information that's coded in our DNA to diagnose and predict a particular physiological outcome. And I was always curious and interested in that, but it never fully sat that well with me of offering. So there were outcomes that we could offer. So for example, you mentioned my work in heart disease. What we did at Oxford was identify individuals who were at risk of sudden cardiac death because they had a mutation in their heart protein genes. And then we would be able to offer them an automated internal defibrillator. Um, but the outcome, it didn't sit well with me. And then I discovered epigenetics. And that it's really exciting to me because epigenetics is the field of science that describes how our cells respond to our environment. Mm. And we can really think very hard about what environment is because a thought is an environment. Mm -hmm. A thought can create a chemical cascade of hormones and of different neurotransmitters that actually create a different environment. People are an environment, our food is an environment, our, <laughs> our home is an environment. So everything in our environment actually has the capacity to shift our DNA. And a lot of the work in epigenetics that I'm finding most joy in right now is finding those particular environments that are bringing about shifts in our DNA that cause an individual to feel joy or to feel their own wholeness or to feel balance within their own bodies mm -hmm. and 
Epigenetics is pretty exciting because the field then went one step further and they recognized that the environment of our ancestors and our grandparents and our great-grandparents also left signatures on our genetic makeup. And so we also have the past historical environments that are really impacting our gene expression too. So it's, um, it's a really beautiful combination of thinking about how our experiences and our environment play out in our genes and what we can do to make those experiences and that environment work for us and give us the best lives possible. I think this is so interesting because I remember being a, a child, like maybe seven or eight years old and starting to learn about, it was, let's see, it was, it was the Human Genome Project. And I was probably, it was, I don't know, 91 or 92. I was young, right? I was in elementary school, primary school. And I remember that my first understanding of genes was that we have DNA and it's this fixed thing, right? Mm -hmm. And this is still prevalent in the conversation mm -hmm. around DNA, Absolutely. especially when we use it as a ex excuse or reason mm -hmm. for health problems or for um, a predisposition to certain um, addiction or addictive tendencies or even behavioral um, characteristics, mm -hmm. right? So you hear, hear people say, well, I just, I have bad genes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm fat, I'm fat or I'm overweight or I can't get in you know, better shape because I have bad genes or, um, well, my learning, my learning disability or ADD or ADHD is just, you know, I get it from my mom or my dad, you know, had mental health problems and I do too. And we take it in often as fatalistic, right? Like people, there are so many people who have a um, deterministic and fatalistic approach to to DNA or to gene expression. And I think that's probably just because most of us don't, you know, don't go deep into the science or don't necessarily um, ever give ourselves the opportunity to learn more. But what I'm hearing you share is that gene expression um, can be changed. Absolutely. And understanding your genetic blueprint can actually be one of the most empowering things possible because it gives you some, it gives you a baseline to understand what your body is capable of doing. And so much of the time, what I find when we're talking about optimizing an individual's environment is in supporting them with knowing that this is my body, this is my genetics, and this is my blueprint that I inherited from my parents. And I can take that information of my genetic blueprint and make it work for me, I can understand what parts of my genetics are really available to me and I can understand where I can change a particular behavior or I can adopt a particular behavior that's going to really support my gene expression. So there's that, so we do have, we inherit our DNA from our parents, that's true, but we have absolute capacity to change the expression of those genes. And that's one of the wonderful, like miraculous things actually about the human body, that we haven't even tapped into a minutiae of the potential of our humanity. And yeah. I remember you said something about this that I thought was really interesting too, that when we were first um, like exploring the human genome, that there was, uh, you know, there was like, well, we know what 10% of these genes do and the other 90% is junk DNA. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, the idea that we would have um, any junk, just when we look at creation, we look at mm -hmm. nature, we look at um, ge geometry, we look at just the, the um, to me, I want to say Indra's web, but the connection between all things mm -hmm. that is so intelligent, it's really hard for me to imagine that we could be carrying any junk. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that, that, what do you think that this 90, and is it still that, is it still that percentage um, in this, in the science world that we think that there's 90% of the, the genes that we don't have any idea what they do? Yeah, I think it's the height of arrogance, actually, to decide that something we don't understand is junk. And I think that that's something that uh, we're aware of. Politics in this country. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 100%. 
Um, but, but yeah, only about between 5 to 10% of our DNA encodes our physical form. Um, and the rest of the gen- genome is the space between the genes. So a gene is the unit of our DNA that actually encodes our physicality, gives us our hair color, our eye color, our skin color, how tall we'll be, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, the space between each of those genes is the area that was called junk DNA. And just to put that in context, actually, um, we have fewer genes in the human body than a grain of rice. We have fewer genes in a grain of rice. A grain of rice has more genes than a human being. What makes a human being actually unique is that we have much more space between our genes. And the space between is precious. What meaning do you make of that? And feel free to make that as esoteric or spiritual, or it doesn't need to be. Do do you make meaning of that, or are you just willing to rest in the mystery of it? Well, the language that I've been able to apply to it for my personal understanding is that it's in the 90% that the seeds of consciousness are planted. And it's that 90% actually that is impacted by epigenetics. So epigenetic signatures don't fall on a gene. They fall in the space between the genes. That's where our gene expression is determined. So does this space between the genes relate with the concept of myelation that you were explaining before? And I'll, and I'll, if, if, whether it's yes or no, uh, my recap of this, which may be totally inaccurate, so please correct me if it is. Um, But when you were sharing about how genes are expressed, one thing that put made it more digestible to me is you said people think of genes as like it's an on-off switch, right? Mm -hmm. We have this or we don't have this. Mm -hmm. But rather than it being a light switch that's on or off, it's like a dimmer switch. So it can be expressed in a, in a, you know, hundred percent capacity or in a 50% capacity or 10% capacity. Um, and that was really interesting for me to understand, especially when we were talking about something like, um, you know, yes, maybe your father had colon cancer and your grandfather had colon cancer and perhaps both of them have this gene that governs, you know, tumor growth and, mm-hmm. and that gene is fully expressed or not fully expressed. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and that was helpful for me because then I understood how it could change, right? Because it was like d- the deterministic thing of I either have it or I don't have it is like off on, but it's not like that. So is there any correlation between these concepts of myelation and the space between the genes? Or are we talking about two different things? No, 100%. Uh, the process is um, methylation. And a methyl group actually sits on the DNA. So when a methyl group is in that space between the genes actually resting on the DNA, then the DNA is switched down or dimmed. And then when the fewer methyl groups that you have on your DNA, the more uh, that piece of your genetic code can express itself. So it's, Mm. um, it's, yeah, it's about those methylation groups. And the best way I've come to understand it or a really interesting application of it is um, through a gentle, great scientist called um, Steve Hovarth. He's from UCLA. And he quantified the number of methylation groups um, on different ages, on individuals of different age groups and then was able to identify the average methylation profile of somebody who was 30 or of somebody who was 40 or of somebody who was 50. What's really fascinating now is that the science is demonstrating that that pattern of methylation group that correlates with your chronological age or the number of times you've taken a trip around the sun or your, your birth date um, can actually be reversed when you optimize your environment. So your methylation age can can change when you when you find yourself in a place where where your balance of methylation is much more is much more in line with your truth and that happens in the space between the genes so a real life example of this i'll share my friend uh grace van berkham she's a nutritionist and yoga teacher and um devotee of epigenetics, a Mm -hmm. student of epigenetics. She runs a a beautiful retreat center in Nicaragua and her father was living in Toronto 
um, in Canada, and he was, I think, approaching 80 and um, had pretty progressed Alzheimer's um, and was really uh, doing poorly, you know, not, not remembering much, um, struggling with cognition, struggling with his health, not eating much. And they basically can, had kind of written him a death warrant and said, you know, he's, this is it. He was living in an assisted living facility. And, um, and she, after preparing her retreat center in Nicaragua, she um, brought her father down to live down there. And she does um, plant-based nutrition. So she does a lot of living foods or raw foods very close to the earth. They grow a lot of their own food. Um, she teaches a couple different styles of yoga and they have, you know, art, therapy and sound therapy and dogs. And, um, Mm. and it was so, I mean, to watch her father over the last three years, I think he's gone from, I think he's probably close to 84. Now he's up, he's walking, he's making art again. He's doing watercolor. He remembers everybody's names. He's dancing with, you know, the young women who work there. Um, He's just vibrant. And you look at photos and in the, in the before, um, at a younger age, chronologically, he looked so much older and so much sicker. Mm-hmm. And now he looks young and well. And, and um, it's just incredible. Like it's to me, you know, I, my father died of, um, of liver disease when I was 24 and li- lifelong lupus, liver disease, um, a lot of different health problems. And, and my husband's father died of colon cancer. And and it's interesting because both of them towards the later stages of their life tried to make these changes in optimizing their environment, but mm-hmm. there are so many factors, just like you've talked about in environment. And mm-hmm. sometimes I think, you know, we can try something for a little while and it doesn't work or it's, it's too late or it's not enough. And, um, and it, or it's just our time to go. But when, like I've seen personally that, that this reversal can happen of something mm-hmm. that most people think can't be reversed, like Alzheimer's can't be reversed, right? Yeah. Um, so if we've taken a oops, if we'd taken a blood sample from Grace's father before his Nicaragua time and after his Nicaragua time, you would a hundred percent be able to see where his gene, where the methylation patterns in his genes had changed over the course of his finding that environment that really enriched his soul and his truth. So because I know people are going to be right now curious for themselves or for a loved one, okay, there's something that I, that I want to reverse or change. Um, what are the factors in my environment that I may want to look at? Mm-hmm. Um, well, for me, the first thing that I, and it's, well, I mean, it's not easy, actually. It's probably the most fundamental thing and it's, our thoughts we never really consider our thoughts to be an environment but I would really offer that our thoughts might be the most powerful environment that we can find ourselves in and that's not to I mean it's not easy for many people to control their thoughts and I mentioned I spoke about ancestral programming and ancestral trauma and many of our thoughts actually subconsciously are encoded by things that happened in our lineage but at first up an awareness of that can be really really powerful and I've seen this play out in my work as well and in awareness of a thought not actually belonging to you in your present moment reality but that thought being something that was a story that was passed down to you from your ancestors and your ancestors ancestors would have wanted you to know this story because they would have wanted you to be safe what your ancestors wouldn't have known is that your environment is completely different to the environment that they were in. And actually a great example of this is um, Holocaust survivors. Their methylation patterns have been, um, have been studied extensively and they have different methylation patterns in specific genes. One of them is a gene called FKBP5. It, um, it, it determines how our proteins fold. And, um, in pre- present day individuals who are descendants of survivors of that atrocity have witnessed this, find themselves having thoughts of fear. Their grandparents, their great grandparents needed them to know a story. They needed them to know a story of that fear to keep them safe 
but they have to now take into consideration that they're not in that same environment. And so their thoughts now have to really readjust to reflect their current reality mm. and their current environment. And we have control over that too. We can absolutely have more control about of our current environment than we think. We can find ourselves, you know, really being very conscious and aware of what is in our current environment that is serving us, that's making our thoughts feel more empowered or more sovereign and what's in our current environment that really isn't supporting us and then start to dissect, start to become really, really consciously aware of where you want to place yourself. I think this is a time that I'd love to invite you to share, if you're willing, you shared a personal story that relates to um, the way that these ancestral stories may be passed down. And it was around your, um, as you progressed in your career, you found yourself struggling with using your voice mm. in a work environment. Um, would you share a little bit about that and what um, awareness you came to or what revelation you came to as it relates to ancestral trauma? Absolutely. And I guess, you know, people say you teach what you need to learn and that really does play out in my life. So one of the reasons I'm so interested in epigenetics is because it was such a crucial element of my understanding of my healing. Um, as you very graciously introduced me at the beginning of our time today, I have, I have credentials that are perceived to be good credentials. Fancy. They're very fancy. <laughs> That's a great word. I love that word. Um, and so I was at Oxford and I did have all of these letters after my name and I was making these discoveries. And when it came to offering these discoveries or talking about them in a room of executives so that they could be disseminated to the wider community, um, I couldn't speak. I couldn't even, the words wouldn't come out of my throat. The words of, I'm, I'm Dr. Colby, I'm, I'm a scientist on this project. I would rehearse them. I would have them on a piece of paper the night before and I'd read them. But when we'd I'd watch people going around the table introducing themselves and I'd get clammy, my throat would close up. And it's interesting. So now with this current understanding, the story that my grandparents needed me to know, and my grandparents are from India, they're from the untouchable caste of Indian society, which means that they were essentially the slave caste, the outcast. Uh, listeners might not be as familiar with um, Indian social hierarchies, but they grade from the highest, the Brahmins, the teachers and the lecturers of society, all the way down to people who don't even deserve to be part of that classification and those are termed the untouchables. My ancestral, ancestral lineage is that of the untouchable. And so when it came, the story in my cells was that it wasn't safe for me to be in that room and speak and own my power and as a woman be heard. And it took me a long time and a lot of healing to realize that that didn't belong to me. That didn't belong to me at all. That was a story that my grandparents needed me to know because it was a story that they knew to keep them safe. And they hadn't considered that that story wouldn't be, and my environment was not rural India. It was the halls of the University of Oxford. And the irony is kind of interesting because actually my environment was that of the highest class of Indian society, the academics and, and, and the teachers. And so there was this huge dichotomy of not really having, my insides were that of the untouchable and my outsides were that of the academic. And finding a space for those two polarities to neutralize each other, I guess, in a sense, to align my insides with my outsides is how I've come to understand it was supremely healing for me. It really was. And it's my experience. And my experience of healing that has been firstly in the awareness of it, and then becoming really, really conscious. Am I reacting from my current environment right now? Or am I still playing out the story 
that my ancestors needed me to know or that my little girl heard or that my teenager heard or yeah that that isn't a true reflection of my current living breathing reality and I try to live my life from that space now I try to be really really conscious of what is my reality what's my current environment telling me is the most appropriate way to be thinking and being and doing and oftentimes my current environment and for many of us if we really become attuned to our current environment we're safe <laughs> we're in joy we have nothing we have if we're blessed a roof over our heads and food in our stomachs and and to live our truth from that space is very empowering well it was for me at least thank you so much for sharing that story it resonates as deeply this time as it does the first time i heard it and i i know that those listening really feel that as well and may um have had just a revelation or an understanding of uh maybe some of the stories that have been passed to them by their ancestors or by their child self or by their adolescent self. Mm -hmm. I know a few for me came up as you were speaking. And one thing I think may be helpful, you know, you talk about cultivating this awareness of our thoughts and cultivating the awareness of our current reality, our current environment. And and I know that in order to do that, we need to be able to create space between the stimulus and the response mm -hmm. and that can be really challenging um, i found myself recently um stimulated I, I found you know something that was from my adolescence was activated i was in an environment where i was being videotaped while i was dancing and i was dancing in a way that i was being encouraged it was a bhangra it was like it was, mm -hmm. it, was it was after a kundalini class it was I was being encouraged to dance. And one of the things that she was offering, which was valuable, was dance in a way different than you've danced before to move your energy in a way different than you've moved before. Fine, mm -hmm. harmless, right? Mm -hmm. Except there was a man with a video camera present. Mm -hmm. And because of certain past traumas for me that have involved people viewing me and or people videotaping me in the expression of sexuality at varying degrees of... Um, appropriateness of that and some of them being quite horrible i was triggered you know people throw that word around but my wound was activated and i had a really powerful um, fear and anger ang mostly anger response i was angry and then i was sad and it took me about two hours maybe a little longer and the support of some of my peers in that moment to understand what had just happened. Mm -hmm. And so to me, this, one of my primary goals in my healing process is to do what I call shorten my recovery time, right? Shorten my response time. Mm -hmm. Meaning that when these activations of a wound happen or when these triggers happen, it's not like I'm trying to have those not ever happen because because we have this cellular memory, we have these incredibly intelligent bodies that, that remember things and that say, oh, danger here, right? This something in our environment is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's been this idea of trying to shorten the time between perceiving the danger and then creating the awareness around the actual environment that I'm in and what threat is present or not present. Um, and so I wonder, I know that you and I are versed in yoga and meditation. And so we have some of those tools in our toolkit, but for people who are still feeling it really challenging mm -hmm. to first even observe their thoughts or to um, find any space between the stimulus and the response, do you have any insight into how some practical ways that we can start to to create the space to be able to observe our environment instead of just reacting to it. Well, I think what you just touched on really, really encapsulates what I'm going to about to say, because you mentioned the words cellular memory. And I think it's actually really, really, really important to honor that that cellular memory is present in you. 
I don't think it's helpful to suppress it, to recognize that this is my experience. And actually there is a current present day signature of that experience that is encoded in your cells right now. It happened to you, your cells, it imprinted a story on your cells and you carry those cells today. Where I think we can start to neutralize some of that triggering and and you touched upon it i think what you said is really beautiful is in firstly a knowingness that that memory is held in my cells is really important because we can't blame ourselves for being triggered and we can't we can't i find myself doing this still today why is this still coming up for me why am i still afraid to speak why am i still afraid to be out there and to own my gifts and those cellular memories they don't disappear overnight i think those stories and i watch them those and we can watch them that's what's really powerful about the science over and above everything i think we know that the healing modality isn't the science what the science enables us to do is watch those methylation markers have less and less and less of an impact on you as you change your reaction time to the stimulus or as you become more aware so this story is currently present in my cells today and i'm going to i'm going to allow my body to feel that story and i'm going to breathe through it and i'm going to have an awareness of what my body is doing and a knowingness of why my body is being triggered and i'm going to feel it fully if i have the capacity to do that and i'm going to call on my community and allow them to support me through this. And then the next time I'm triggered, if I'm triggered again, I'm going to continue in that awareness. And the next time, if you've had a different, a new experience of an old memory, because those memories are at play in your current reality. And if you can change your current reality or the way you respond in your current reality to that old memory, then that memory that's present in your current reality has a different expression. Mm-hmm. And if you can continue to give it a different expression in your current reality, eventually it doesn't have the same... Actually, eventually the story doesn't is present on fewer cells or those epigenetic markers that were present on cells when you were most triggered, they, there may be fewer of those, those markers, maybe fewer in number, and then the next time they reduce in number. And... There comes a point, I think, when you find a space where those markers are completely different. For me, my epigenetic lesions or markers that were on my cells that told me it wasn't safe to be heard and seen are not present in the same expression as they were 10 years ago. And that a lot of that's through the awareness and the understanding that I was reacting from a space that wasn't my truth. I heard a few things in there that I think are really worth reiterating. One is to allow the somatic experience, allow the body experience of what is coming up, whether it is fear or anger or grief or, um, or whatever, whatever it may be allow it and and actually instead of avoiding it or pushing it away let yourself go into it breathe breathe um, breathe <laughs> um, breathe yeah, the breath is so helpful so helpful for so many things mm-hmm. and then another thing that i heard that i think is interesting that i don't know if this is scientifically accurate or if i just drew a parallel between what you're saying and something i've heard before but One thing that I've heard, and I don't remember where I read it or where I heard it, but was that memory is not fixed or we, it's not, we don't actually have memory in the sense of like, it's a photograph or a video that's recorded in our mind and it will stay that way forever. But that when we recall memory, we are actually recalling the last time 
that we recalled the memory. Mm-hmm. And you can think of it as almost like a library checkout, the old fashioned library mm-hmm. checkout cards mm-hmm. or carbon copies, right? That each time we recall the memory, we're making another carbon copy of it. That is the, the original memory is still there, but we're also adding today's layer of experience or recollection of it that's infused with today's environment and consciousness. Um, and that's really comforting for me in a way. It, you know, it, I've thought about that a lot as I, I try to write my memoirs because mm-hmm. I struggle sometimes with the veracity of things, the, the truthfulness of my own story and wondering, is what I'm saying did this actually happen? Is this true? Is this factual? Because I've recalled it so many times and maybe it's distorted over time. But the flip side of that is um, that, well, first of all, I'm not sure there is an objective reality, singular reality, or, you know, like we look, can just look at history and, and, and recognize that there's always an infinite number of perspectives on what is happening. Um, But even within ourselves, we can have multiple different, we can shift the perspective on what is happening. And I think that's kind of what I'm hearing you say with this somatic awareness and breathing and then tending to the memory or the trigger with awareness of your current environment and through doing that carefully and compassionately over time that we're actually changing what is held within us. We're changing that memory. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question now that I don't know if you'll know the answer to. Is that my favorite kind of questions? (laughs) So it's about water. Mm-hmm. Because a girlfriend and I were talking recently about our bodies and cellular mm-hmm. memory and water. Mm-hmm. And um, and this was one of those profound, you know, intuitive aha things that I have no idea whether it's factual or not. But she was saying that um, she feels like because our bodies have so much water in them and wa- water uh, carries memory that um that that's a big part of why our womb space specifically holds a lot of emotional memory and how water is related to emotions now does this just sound like kind of a new age kooky like idea or do you is there some connection between cellular memory like, where does it live? Does it live in all of the cells? Does it live in heart cells? Does it live in, in, in all different, does it live in the tissue? Like, what do we mean when we say cellular memory? Uh, so the way I personally view cellular memory, and remind me to come back to the water because I loved what you were just talking about. Oh, good, I just way... question stacked you. I asked two <laughs> questions. I get excited and well, I do that. No, I love it. The way that we can view cellular memory on a machine, a sequencing machine that gives you a readout is to look at where those methylation markers are sitting on the DNA and where they're not sitting on the DNA. So a really good example of a study that was done on this um, is in rats. So rats who were licked and groomed as pups and rats who were ignored as pups they have a cellular memory where there's a lot of methylation sitting on a gene in, that encodes a protein in the brain called the glucocorticoid receptor. So there's a cellular memory there that you can take those that take a blood sample from that particular rat, sequence it, and understand that this particular pup was adopted out to the mother who ignored it because the glucocorticoid receptor is completely methylated or so the so the location of cellular memory in that context in the way that is measurable using today's technology and using today's understanding of the science the location of the memory is in the dna of the cells and is 
characterized by the story told by a methylation marker or the presence or the absence of a methylation marker. And a methylation marker is a carbon with three hydrogens attached to it. Um, so the, I, I think, you know, it's interesting when we talk about, is that true or is that an understanding or is that completely out there? If you look at the history of science, it was completely out there to understand the unit of inheritance as being DNA only a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, Rosalind Franklin, the most amazing scientist that ever lived who elucidated the structure of DNA. And everything's completely out there until a new truth comes along. And I think Dr. Emoto's work around water and around memory and around how water responds to emotion is a new truth. But then there's another phase of that truth being accepted. I can't remember what the, all of the, um, how, what the phases of, is it, they first, they disbelieve you and then you provide the evidence and then you're believed, but only by a small fraction of society. And then it becomes, becomes common understanding or something like that in the progression of Sounds about right. <laughs> understanding of new concepts. The idea that water held memory as a new concept, probably to the vast majority of, the scientific community at least and yet it makes sense on some level it makes sense on a heart level and for me personally when something makes my heart feel a certain way and it's i can't even describe it actually but there's there's something really interesting about the memories in our bodies that water holds i was in um, i went to a flotation tank uh, last week mm -hmm. and was having very very specific memories in that flotation tank of being in the womb like very 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 specific and um and it, i think it was i mean those memories were probably being carried in in the water <laughs> Uh, but yeah, my favorite answer to a question is I don't know, to be completely honest, because it opens up a whole world of possibility of what you can find out. And so the truth to your question is I don't know, but I just, and, I, and I'm trying to remove but from my vocabulary so much, and I don't know, and what you say really resonates with me. I, um, I've just been noticing miracles upon miracles lately as I deepen into healing work and how much we don't know and how much more is possible when we rest in the state of I don't know and I don't know what I don't know mm -hmm. um and and you know we met because you came and and facilitated um an incredible lecture at a kundalini yoga training and so here you are, one of the most, you know, um, respected, cutting edge scientists in the world, um, who also is studying what many would still say is an esoteric spiritual pra practice. Um, and, you know, within, within uh, Kundalini, we talk about it as a technology. It's also a set of practices, but there's also technology in it. Um, and one of those technologies specifically is, is sound vibration. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that sound vibration um, can change things. And that sound vibration is actually foundational in all things, right? In all matter, because sound mm -hmm. vibration is the essence of uh, energy expression at its origin point um, yeah. or from its origin point. So I'm just curious if for you and for everybody listening, we talked about thought as being one of the um, environmental factors that we can be aware of and that we can tend to or shift to move towards healing. I'm wondering what your opinion is of sound as a tool for healing. Uh, yeah. There's an, actually an amazing group out of Harvard right now who are studying a science called mechanobiology. And it's really fun for me to watch the science evolve in these things. So 
um, their group shows the sig uh, the signaling cascade of different responses that happen when a sound hits a cell. So they have individual cells. They expose that cell to um, a frequency of sound. And then they show how that sound is conveyed through all of the different components of the cell to the DNA. And for example, they've shown things like the genes involved in creating a bone, bone morphogenic protein being upregulated in response to sound. I still remember the first time somebody came to me and said, I broke a bone in my arm and I went to a sound healing and the next day it was fixed. I thought that person was <laughs> my absolutely right now, you guys. <laughs> uh, Yeah, my face just went like they were absolutely, wow. And you know, that's, and you said something beautiful to me earlier and I'm in the process too of releasing my preconceived ideas because just because some Harvard scientist has now developed an sci area of science called mechanobiology that shows that bone morphogenic protein is upregulated due to the signal cascade that's caused when the pressure of the sound hits the cell and moves through um, that cell, that doesn't make her claim any more okay. She had a truth that was okay for her. And that's something that I'm really learning, relearning as a human being is, we nobody has the right to define what truth is whether they have the label of scientist or whether they have the label of musician or whatever whatever a label is that doesn't give us the the monopoly on truth i, I really feel that truth comes from within us and that said i also recognize and experience every day the power and the value that having somebody validate and I, I, I say validate carefully because I, I think we're all valid but what this study did was validate the understanding that yes genes can get upregulated and downregulated in response to particular sound currencies. Mm -hmm. What I would offer though however is that what was beautiful about what this woman shared was that she shared it from her cellular experience. Mm -hmm. And that to me has a very different essence than having an intellectual understanding of something. I wasn't able to receive her story because I was trying to understand it intellectually. If I had been closer to my truth at that particular time, then I would have potentially had a cellular experience of what she was sharing. Mm. It could have been a beautifully healing experience for me. I missed out on receiving that from her because I was closed off to the idea. Um, now with hindsight and with current scientific understanding, her, her cellular experience was so valid. And so, I don't know, there's a really interesting juncture right now for me in my life of recognizing how the intellectual understanding of something and the cellular experience of that same thing have very different essence in my body. And my personal he healing happens as a result of having the cellular, the cellular experience mm -hmm. of, of something rather than understanding the intellectualness of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I recently had an experience um, that I'm still struggling to to put language around, mm -hmm. and it was um, related. It was with mantra, mm -hmm. and it wasn't even a meditation per se. But I was in a in a many hours of of um, of meditation and devotion and chanting, and had a an, uh, bodily um, mm -hmm response where in involuntarily not of my own volition both of my eyes went to mm. my third eye and an opening happened and in that opening i my entire perspective of what I, visually what i normally see visually completely changed and what i saw was I don't know how to explain it. It was like um, code almost. It was like mm -hmm. ge geometric. Um, 
it was the weaving of sound vibration and the energy of love into a tapestry that encapsulates everything. And in it, I understood myself to not be separate from it, but a part of it and doing the weaving while simultaneously being woven. And it was something, it was something else that I'm still, that, that in that experience, there was uh, my, I guess, I don't know, my ego or some, some other voice over here in my head said, well, what are you gonna do now? <laughs> and my reaction was, um, chop wood, carry water. You know, there's a Zen koan that says before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Mm -hmm. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And not claiming mm -hmm. enlightenment, but it was enlightening. Mm -hmm. It was illuminating of a, of a, of a, perspe a visual perspective shift that seemed to be precipitated by sound current and my own devotion, my heart. Like yeah. you're talking about my, you know, your heart. And my heart mm -hmm. is always seeking God, which is this very simple word to encapsulate the, probably a very simple thing, but you can say source, spirit, universe, whatever. And what was really interesting is there was three other women in that room as I was having that experience. And uh, without them, they knew that something was happening, even though I was not verbally expressing mm -hmm. what was happening and were super tender with me afterwards in, you know, if and when you would you like to talk about this we're you know here but this idea that you know I'm, I'm speaking to this because of this woman who had this bone and then she believed it was healed because of the sound vibration and you in in hearing at that time were not necessarily able to receive it but this idea that if your consciousness or your awareness had been in a different space of receptivity that you might have been able to to receive that and you say on a cellular level and i'm wondering about and this is that this is you know we'll, we'll wrap to, towards closing because i know we've been here for a while but i'm wondering about this idea of healing as a transmission or as an impartation mm. where one being one human being in my own body can come into proximity with another human being you and your body and through, I'm not sure what, our electromagnetic field, our toroidal field, through our um, linking somehow, an agreement to share our space of consciousness that we can communicate to each other. And I know we're doing that all the time. We're communicating through pheromones and we're communicating through body language and we're communicating through you know, our voices. But do you believe that there's also some sort of permeability where what is happening in my energetic field or in my body can affect what's happening in your body. Absolutely. And I've actually been fortunate enough to have an experience of that in the laboratory where I've been looking at cells down in a Petri dish, looking at cells through a microscope and becoming and realizing that I have an opportunity to to really test some of these these concepts that we're talking about and i've changed my vibration i've actually gone through the heart brain coherence that you have that you just mentioned and watched those cells starting to behave differently as a result of me shifting my vibration so i think that that's that i mean that's kind of a playful example or a an example of how i've personally had a an experience of it and I want to share on that, Dr. Colby, you, because uh, you told this story and, mm. and I think there's a little more detail that, that turns it on for people. If you're, they were skin cells, is that correct? You oh, correct. Right? Yeah, they were skin cells. They were skin cells where the methylation pattern in them had been um, shifted to tell them that they were no longer skin cells. So all of our, the cells in our bodies have exactly the same DNA more or less. Um, but the skin cells have the genes that tell them that their heart cells or pancreatic cells or lung cells or liver cells, they're methylated or switched off. So only those proteins that need to be expressed in the skin cell are switched on. But in this particular cell, the skin cell genes had been switched off and the heart cell genes had been switched on. So what I first saw as I looked down the microscope at these cells in a Petri dish were the cells pulsating because 
my understanding of it now is that they had an inherent divine understanding that they were heart cells and they started to behave like heart cells. So they, they beat like heart cells. All of the cells in the body pulsated simultaneously. And do you feel that that was happening in response to or in correlation with, we don't have to say causation, but to your connection and awareness to your own heart space? Or was there something scientifically that you had done in the in changing them to believe that they were heart cells that was making them act that way? So all heart cells in a Petri dish will pulsate to my understanding. What was really fascinating about this was that I realized I had a unique opportunity in that moment to see whether those heart cells would respond to my changing my, my frequency. And so I actually started to, um, to I, I did a quick heart brain coherence as I was watching the heart cells down the microscope and they started to vibrate differently. Mm. And um, so the heart brain coherence, if you guys don't know, were you recalling a memory of joy, a memory of compassion, exactly. a memory mm-hmm. of wonder, reverence, yeah. memory of power? Mm. Fascinating. That is so and so what do you say about trans the transmission of healing though is really, really beautiful because you know, we've talked about the collective consciousness earlier and we I really do believe that we're all in this together and and your healing is my healing and, and my healing is your healing. And in my personal experience, when you've had when you've had a history where you've been able to transcend that and change the story in yourselves from your own history and demonstrated that, you know, what's really cool is that when somebody sees what's possible in another human being, they, it makes it possible for them too. And then they get the additional benefit of having that energetic transmission. So a little bit like mirror neurons, I guess, I think that we can start to think about DNA as also having the capacity to be mirror DNA. My dad always said that you become like the company you keep. And it's interesting that that memory is coming back to me right now because I haven't heard him say that for a long time. He passed a long time ago. And um, yeah, it's just actually in this moment developed a whole new understanding for me, (laughs) a whole Mm. cellular memory for me of becoming like the company you keep. That was really lovely. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's, I usually invite us to end on some succinct wisdom and I think we can land there. I think that's so (laughs) powerful. I would like to share um, with everyone listening, if you've fallen in love with Dr. Colby, like I have, you can connect with her on Instagram at Dr. underscore Colby and that's K-U-L-V-I. And if you want to know more about the science that she's Um, working with, or if you'd like to practice with her for um, yoga, meditation, um, or both, she has a three-course class that's on her website right now uh, that introduces the science behind certain meditations and then also invites you to go through the practice with her. Um, And I would highly recommend this. I know I'll be checking it out for myself and that you uh, can find that at Dr. Colby. Again, it's um, K-U-L-V-I. And it's just the DR, so the abbreviation for doctor, drkulvi.com. And those are linked in the show notes below. So, you know, if you guys enjoyed this, and I know you did, go say hi to her on Instagram, send her a DM, let her know um, that this impacted you. And, um, and, and go check out those classes. And I hope that this has activated everybody who's listening um, to a greater sense of, of empowerment in, um, in what's possible for you in your life and that uh, your, your DNA is, is not solely deterministic or fatalistic, but it's open. It's an open landscape for you to explore and to work with and to come into partnership with. Um, and I would, I would just love to invite you if there's, you know, I usually invite people to uh, close with, if I ran into you at a grocery store and I was having a really hard day and you could just tell that 
I needed to hear the wisdom of the divine that would be transmitted through you. Um, if you had one minute to say anything to me that might help, what would you say? Wow. Well, one thing that I often offer to people is be the change you wish to see in your cells. I wouldn't necessarily say that to you in the grocery store. <laughs> it might take us a bit longer to understand what it is. I would be with you potentially actually in silence and then just offer and I, I love you. And that's all. And I think you can portray so much in those three words. I think the silence that you would offer would be profoundly comforting and healing and probably the gift I would most want to receive. Um, And I think in light of everything we've talked about today and shared, I'll invite everybody listening to connect with and explore how you sharing your intentional silence with a stranger dropping into your heart space and dropping into that intention of healing as a transmission. Um, Experiment with it and let us know. Connect with us on social and let us know how it goes for you. Dr. Colby, thank you so much for your, your presence. It was truly a gift and I'm deeply honored to share the space with you today. Thank you so much. That was truly a joy. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me on another episode of Women Awake Podcast. If you love today's show, if it impacted you in some way, please grab a screenshot right now and share to Instagram stories tagging Amelia Travis and Women Awake. Each month, I'll choose someone who shared and send you a gift as a thank you for being part of this incredible community. It's your support that makes this show possible. So if you do love us, please subscribe share with a friend or head to iTunes right now to leave me an honest review. And until next time, keep showing up, telling the truth, and remember that everything is an instrument for our awakening.